Ladies and gentlemen, your conference call is about to begin. Here is your moderator, Ms. Marilyn Stern. Thank you, Bonnie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Marilyn Stern, Communications Coordinator for the Middle East Forum. Our speaker today is Clifford Smith, Director of the Middle East Forum's Washington Project, which addresses issues ranging from reforming UNRWA to countering the influence of Islamist groups. Mr. Smith will brief us on our topic regarding U.S. immigration policy and the extreme vetting procedures President Trump had endorsed in response to Islamist terror threats against America. Mr. Smith is an attorney and policy analyst whose articles have been published in American Spectator, PJ Media, and other outlets. An experienced political operative and veteran of numerous campaigns, he has held several positions in Congress and is the forum's liaison to decision makers and opinion leaders in Washington, D.C. Our speaker's July article, True Security Requires Vetting for Ideology, Not Passport, can be found on the forum's website and is background for today's question. Can extreme vetting work? I'll turn it over to Cliff now. Uh, thank you, Marilyn. Uh, as she said, I am the Washington Project Director for the Middle East Forum, and I work on numerous issues. Uh, this includes um, reforming UNRWA's definition of a refugee to only include people that would actually be refugees in the other circumstances, in other words, tackling the right of return. Um, we have been working to delegitimize the Muslim Brotherhood and have them classified as a terrorist organization. I've been involved with um, um, reforming the countering violent extremism programs that under the Obama administration funded Islamist groups. And in general, I tackle um, various issues related to anti-Semitism and education that touch on the federal government, um, as well as others. Particular to the issue of vetting, um, the, the topic today is, you know, can vetting work? We believe it can and should to keep us safe and to secure our values. Uh, a bit of history. Um, about a year and a half ago or so, then-candidate Donald Trump um, said that he wanted to ban Muslims from coming to the United States uh, until we figure out what is going on. This was met with um, widespread rejection, including by personnel of the Middle East Forum. Uh, Dr. Pipes wrote an article that was, I believe was called um, Ban Islamists, Not Muslims. Essentially, Dr. Pipes argued that Muslims, per se, are not the problem. Um, Islamists are. Um, we estimate that somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of Muslims are Islamists, or radical Muslims, or whatever you want to call them. And basically, there are people that believe in a theocratic form of government that supersedes the Constitution, so on and so forth. So what he said is that Banning Muslims is a bad idea. It is arguably unconstitutional. It's unworkable. It doesn't meet our security needs. There's people that are, provide us intelligence and other forms of information about countries that we do have problems with, um, or terrorist organizations or others um, coming from these countries, a blanket ban would be a problem. However, if we could find a way to ban um, Islamists, that would be a worthwhile goal. Trump luckily moved in our direction on that. The, later on, he started discussing extreme vetting. That, we feel, is a workable proposal, and we have been working on that for some time. In um, January of this year, in the Middle East Quarterly, Dr. Pipes wrote an article um, called Smoking Out Islamists Via Extreme Betting. In this, he basically runs down the, the, the backdrop of which I've already described and says what we need to do is we need to actually ask these people what they believe. And there are lots of beliefs that are common to radical Muslims, to theocrats, if you were, um, but are not common to moderate Muslims or Christians or 
um, Yazidis or whatever other group he may never have want to discuss. But so he detailed um, how this would be done. Essentially, every person that is seeking to immigrate here would have to be asked a series of questions. And he gave about 120 examples. Um, for example, can people convert out of your religion? Um, can, what happens if your daughter married someone not of your religion? Um, if your wife wants to seek an education or wants to drive, what do you think about that? And basically, he argued you should ask these questions and ask these questions in repeatedly in different ways, uh, different phrasings. Um, and then basically, so what you're trying to get at here is what do they really believe? In other words, we're not interested in what their religion is, because there are interpretations of Islam that are not theocratic and not totalitarian, and they're ones that are. So we're interested, not in their religion, but in what their larger ideology believes. So after that article, um, we, discuss, we discussed it with a number of people in and around Washington, um, different members of Congress and their staff, people associated with administration, um, and other experts around the field, and we came up with draft legislation that essentially would do this. It would require vetters to ask certain questions. Um, it would require um, them to ask them in different ways, in different um, situations, and also to collect their social media um, accounts and their other public writings, and basically take a holistic view of this person and decide, is this a person that can subscribe to basic constitutional principles that will see a secular government is legitimate, and if so, we don't have a problem with you. If you don't, however, then we do. And we don't believe the people that do not believe in the American style of government, that don't believe in the Constitution, that don't believe in equal rights or freedom of religion, we don't think you should be able to emigrate here. And based on that bill draft, I am currently um, in the process of working with various um, members and staff in Congress to get a bill introduced that would make this into law. Um, we have, I've had meetings with, I believe, about a dozen offices that are interested in this, um, and I have several more set up in the next week or two. And we are working to get this introduced and hopefully, at some point, get it passed into law. Um, but first things first, it's not a slow process, it's not a quick process. We have also talked to a number of people in the White House, including the um, the person that is head of um, Homeland Security Issues and Judicial Issues at the Domestic Policy Council in the White House. Uh, they are enthusiastic about the idea. Um, they are not in a position to endorse legislation that hasn't been introduced yet, but they believe it would be beneficial to their efforts. It's worth mentioning that already our efforts in bringing this attention, this issue to the forefront, have paid some dividends. The Trump administration, by executive order, is already doing a number of things that um, in, are concerning um, vetting for radical Islamists. Um, they are checking social media accounts. Um, they are, are working towards it. They are working towards getting more information from different countries. They are working toward um, essentially you know, looking into things that might be warnings that this person ha has a radical ideology, but they're not focused on ideology per se quite the way we want to them yet. But they are moving in that direction, and we are hoping to continue to push them in that direction. We're hoping to get Congress to help with that process. And we believe that, um, you know, it might not be tomorrow, but we are um, cautiously optimistic we can get a bill introduced. And once that bill gets introduced, it will further um, provide debate on the topic. It will create uh, more chances for media, 
more chances for discussions with different organizations that are supportive of our basic cause, more discussion in Congress and so forth, that will, over time, um, have an effect that will eventually lead to this sort of betting being done. If uh, we play our cards right and work hard at it. And so that is where we are. And we are hoping to continue those efforts um, until we can complete our goal. So with that said, I am perfectly willing to take any of your questions regarding this and discuss it in greater detail. I hope that uh, answers some of your questions, and I'd be glad to discuss it more. OK, thank you. So the question and answer period will now begin, and we invite your participation. Please note that when there are no questions in the queue, the moderator will ask a question. To join the question and answer session queue, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you wish to identify yourself, when your line has been unmuted, please do so. Please remember, if you have your phone on mute, take it off mute when you are selected to ask your question. Again, to join the question and answer session queue, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. Okay, so we'll go to our first caller. Caller, if you wish to identify yourself, please do so when your line is unmuted. Yes, my name is Judith Davies, and I do have a question, having been an international traveler and a flight attendant for a long time. Where exactly does the vetting take place? In what circumstance? And is it being done by both TSA and by other immigration officials, depending on how the person comes into the country? Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, right now, the kind of vetting we're talking about is not being done. I mean, they, but there, it, it, the vetting happens at different places and different times. Um, um, I, uh, I mean, consular offices do a lot of this kinds of stuff. But for other people, like asylum seekers and such, you know, there, I believe there are people at DHS and stuff that also do it. Um, I am not, um, I do believe there are quite a few different circumstances under which it is done. Um, at different spots, um, but generally speaking, it is done whenever you would whenever you would seek a visa here. The majority of time, you already do have to answer certain questions um, and provide certain information. Um, our idea is basically just to include whatever the situ the process already is. Whenever you're already going into the consular's office to get a visa or whatever, whenever you're having to answer those questions already, that you also have to answer additional questions and discuss this, um, you know, your your beliefs in more detail. All right, thank you. Okay, there, just a reminder, if you wish to ask a question, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. And I'll turn it back to our moderator. Thank you, Bonnie. A question I have for Cliff. Uh, a recent article written by Saren Kern described how Austria enacted a law requir requiring immigrants to sign something called an integration contract. It obligates them to learn written and spoken German and enroll in courses about the basic values of Austria's legal and social order. Do you see the U.S. following suit? That's interesting. I, I hadn't seen that article. Um, it's certainly um, it's certainly something that I can see value in. Um, it is something that I think would be somewhat unusual. Um, I mean. I do know that even currently, I mean, immigrants that actually are becoming citizens, anybody that seeks to become a citizen does have to take an oath to the Constitution and ha usually has to learn something about American history. Um, but I am not, um, 
it would certainly be something I, I think would be interesting to look at. I, I do not think that that's not part of reference right now, but it's something we're thinking about. Thank you. Uh, there are no more questions in the queue, Bonnie? Not at this time. Okay. Well, to continue with uh, the topic of the vetting specifically, uh, I saw that uh, two days ago there was a presidential executive order on the title is Resuming the United States Refugee Admissions Program with Enhanced Vetting Capabilities. Um, it didn't really go into the details as to what the nature of the questions were. I think it just generally dealt with um, getting, as you as you covered, more areas of um, investigation. Uh, is yeah. there, what has been the response to the specific kind of questions that have been put forth by Dr. Pipes and that you also made reference to in your article? Um, so there's two things here. As far as what the Trump, it, it's, what we know, um, I've been on I've been on calls with the White House personnel to, to discuss this issue, and I know that they are currently um, working. Um, I believe it is already implemented. Seeking, you know, asking for social media accounts, asking for other public writings, asking for criminal backgrounds, and basically threatening um, countries that are not providing this, saying, "Hey, if you don't start providing this, we may cut off or heavily restrict travel from your country." Um, I am not aware of any specific questions they are asking um, or that they have mandated asking. I under, my, actually, my understanding is um, that behind this, that they are having some difficulty with um, the bureaucracy getting them to ask certain questions with various um, problems with the law requiring them to jump through hoops to include any further questions or to mandate any specific questions. So actually, we're, our legislation is seeking to deal with that it frees up the administration's hands to include more questions if they want to without having to jump through extensive administrative hoops. Right now, to, in order to require certain questions, um, there are a lot of administrative hoops they have to jump through. We're hoping to clear the deck on that with the legislation we are working toward. Um, so that is, that's how that goes. As far as the questions that we are asking or we're hoping are going to be asked in the future, um, I can say that in talks with people at the White House and in Congress, there's a lot of um, understanding of what we are getting at. They recognize that essentially, um, as Dr. Pipe said, um, radical Islam is a problem, moderate Islam is a solution. They recognize that this would be a good way of dividing between um, radical Muslims and moderate Muslims, and they think that asking questions of this nature would be helpful to um, leading out radicals and allowing for moderates. And I think that it, I have gotten, certainly from the White House or um, members of Congress I have talked to so far, a very little pushback, at least on the concept. They, you know, as I mentioned, Dr. Pipes' article, I believe, had 120 questions or somewhere on that number. And in the actual um, draft bill, um, we didn't think it would be possible to get those, but we, we chose like the 30 best to uh, or so to to ask. And they might quibble with this question or that to say, well, should we ask this or ask that, or should we word it, phrase it quite that way? Although the bill does allow for the, the government to create alternate phrasings if necessary. Or But there's a wide recognition that the, the concept of there are good questions out there, that some of which we, you know, that we have identified 
that are helpful in separating um, the good guys from the bad guys. And I think that that concept has a lot of support for people that have thought about this issue. Okay. Okay, we have another caller with a question. When you hear your line is unmuted, if you wish to introduce yourself, please do so. Hi, Cliff. Uh, this is Janet Doslinger. Um, I met you at the conference in Philadelphia. Actually, before that oh, in good. New York. Hi. Um, I, this, this is kind of an obvious. This is kind of an obvious question, and I guess you get around it somewhat by, by looking at the people's social media postings. But can't the Islamists just lie? Sure, and but that's exactly what our our method is trying to get around. It is absolutely true that they can lie. Um, but that is why we have these series of questions that we want asked, and we specifically say in our draft legislation um, that these questions should be asked, you know, multiple times in different ways. You know, you can in other, there's ways to ask a similar question and phrase it differently, and you can you know have it oral and written. You can ask it orally several times or written several times in different ways. And anybody that's been involved in interrogation of any sort will tell you. Somebody that actually knows something um, or actually believes something, um, you know, usually will pretty much give the same answer no matter how I ask the question, more or less. However, somebody trying to conceal something, it will, their inconsistencies will start to show up, much, you know, the vast majority of the time. Most people are not great liars, and even the best trip up a lot. And so if you ask them these questions multiple times and then compare it to the social media, you're not just getting you know, a one-off answer to a question that they may have already heard of, you're getting a chance to probe into their beliefs and compare it based on their statements they have made, both to the betters and in public via social media or, you know, articles they've written or what have you. Um, so that's exactly what we're trying to do. It's a recognition that, yes, they can lie, and, and there's no way to ever get around that. You know, you're always going to have, you know, there's always going to be some room for error in any system. The point of our the point of our method is to approach it in different ways and compare in order to ensure the you know the, that is the least likely to be possible. Is there? Um, do you mind if I ask another follow up question? Um, is um, is there some way that if in the future it turns out the person had, had lied, they could somehow be um, have their citizenship taken away from them or be, be kicked well, out that, of the country? There's, there's two things here. One is um, the legislation already basically says if you lie to the vetters, then it's a criminal penalty. Uh, irrespective of your immigration status, it's a criminal penalty. And you can already, under U.S. law, lose, your, lose, a citizen, lose citizenship if you lie during your citizenship process. I mean, most, a lot of these people that are immigrating are not necessarily going to be citizens. They're going to be, you know, student. they're going to be here on visas, they're going to be here on green cards, whatever the case may be. So this would already, if you get caught lying, it's criminal. And so that, that there's a punishment already. As far as the, people that go all the way to citizenship, it's already law that if you lie during the citizenship process, you can lose your citizenship. That's what happened to... Uh, Mrs. Oda, as I believe her name is, um, that was recently deported to Jordan after she lied about being in Israeli jail for uh, helping with suicide bombings, um, and um, you know that would continue to be law. So it would. Um, we have it set up to, in order to strongly discourage. Lying. Oh, thank you. 
Okay, there's no further questions at the moment, so I'll turn it back to our moderator, Marilyn. Okay, thank you. Um, and Cliff, you mentioned uh, the Countering Violent Extremism panel that they had had recently. And I recall that when uh, they had uh, on the panel Ayan Hirsi Ali, Asra Nomani, uh, John Lanchowski, and uh, one from the NCTC, um, that there were, uh, just coming out of the gate, I believe it was Claire McCaskill, I could be wrong on that, and uh, Kamala Harris, uh, really seemed to be putting a lot of opposition uh, against a lot of the, you know, um, testimony that was being offered um, with the yeah. usual um, disclaimer, not wanting to, you know, paint a broad brush on the community. I am curious uh, what kind of objections have um, organizations that are known to be the first ones to um, jump up like CARE, like ACLU, SPLC, sure. what, have you, what have you had to deal with from them? And I'm surprised that they've been relatively quiet on this. Well, I mean, frankly, I mean, so far we, we've kept our efforts mostly beneath the radar, so we aren't getting a lot of objections from people like that yet. Um, that said, you're 100% correct that they will almost certainly do so at some point the further we get down, you know, assuming we get further down this process, which we're confident we will. Um, I'm certain they will object. I'm certain they will raise all the same things that they always do. However, um, I think we're actually in a pretty good spot in that, or at least the best spot possible insofar as what we are asking them to disavow is so obvious that I think it's very easy to flip them around, flip it around on them. I mean, so in other words, oh, I object to you asking people these questions. This is Islamophobic. Like, okay, so is what you're telling me is you think that most Muslims favor female genital mutilation and that most Muslims, you know, believe terrorism funding is okay? Well, wait a sec. I didn't say, well, yes, that's what you're saying because that's what we're asking. You know, you believe that most Muslims believe that, you know, their women shouldn't be able to drive. You know, you, we believe you... and. That gets awfully hard to answer really quick. So while they can certainly make those arguments if they want, um, I don't think that they're going to get a whole lot of traction with the greater public. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, something I have said to people um, when I've discussed this issue that I think is absolutely true, and I think this is one of the reasons why our, um, our efforts in this have a chance of success, is that Trump's Muslim ban comment um, while wrongheaded, um, the sad thing is, politically, you can make a decent argument, it kind of worked for him. But why did it work for him? You know, people say, well, that's crazy, that's irresponsible, well, maybe so, but why did it work? Uh, it worked on some level for him because the Obama administration spent eight years pretending there was no problem. Nadal Hassan could jump up on a table screaming Allahu Akbar and start shooting people up in the middle of a military base, and they would say it's workplace violence. Obviously, the public will look at this, and you see it enough times, and you tell them, who are you going to believe, me, you know, me or your lying eyes? You say that enough times, they're just going to stop believing you at all. Um, so the response to both Trump's overbroad statement, banning all Muslims, and Obama's understatement, there is no problem, is a responsible way of looking at it, which is there is a thing called radical Islam. Some people buy into it. A lot do not. We need to differentiate between the two and keep the good and get rid of the bad. So I think that while these organizations that you're talking about will certainly try, I think they are on shaky political ground in order to do so. I think they're going to be opposing something that most people, um, if you, certainly if you get a chance to talk to them, 
will support and most people will realize is actually a very common sense, very rational, very um, reasoned solution and I think that will put um, its proponents uh, on a good political high ground. Thank you. I see that there are still no more questions, so I will continue with my questioning. Uh, we are at 424, so I will offer what I think will be the last one. Um, have you had any insights into the Muslim community itself and their response, not their so-called self-appointed representatives that basically run interference for anything that uh, would benefit the Muslim community as well as the non-Muslim community at large. Uh, have you had any insights or polling or responses that uh, give you any ideas of what the mainstream Muslim community are thinking about this? On the one hand, they see that this is going to be pretty much a done deal or things are shifting that way. And I believe that sometimes has a way of drawing attention to a topic that are sometimes uh, better avoided if they don't have to deal with it. Um, but is there, has there been a positive, negative, neutral, no information? What are you aware of? Um, so as you rightly point out, there are self-appointed leaders of the Muslim community, um, but they don't really represent the Muslim community at large certainly um, not in America and even other places as well. And that does create a certain problem because it gets very difficult to know, you know, what they think. And especially since in America they are, you know, fairly um, dispersed, they are not concentrated, they are not, um, they're not very monolithic or it's very difficult to know. I'm not aware of any polling um, or anything like that. What I can say, and I can say with some confidence, is that there are certainly moderate Muslims out there, um, some of which I have talked to, that understand the problem. They understand that there are radicals that believe things that they do not believe, and they understand that certainly in their, you know, their former countries, if they're from abroad, um, which you know many of them are, or at the very least their parents were, um, that are persecuting moderate Muslims um, and doing more damage to moderate Muslims than they are anybody else. And I think there is a recognition about, of that um, by moderate Muslims in America. And I think that to the degree we can channel that and to the degree we can get them to speak out in their own behalf as the people that are most threatened, that that will be an asset to what we are trying to do. Okay, thank you. I see we're 426. I'll offer you one more question. Um, I read that there's going to be uh, more stringent screening for countries that are having uh, travelers come into the U.S. Um, one mentioned the Emirates. Uh, another one was discussing, I think, somewhere in Europe. Um, as far as people traveling on airliners, since uh, threats that are ever-present but seem to be emphasized even more against uh, flights to the U.S. Uh, is there any impression from international uh, markets as to whether they see the merit in this or not? Are they cooperating? Uh, I have to believe it's more than just the Emirates and one other country that are um, agreeing with this. But um, what is the balance of 
pro versus con regarding these movements here in the U.S.? Um, I don't know exactly how foreign governments, you know, are um, just dealing with this internally. I'm not familiar with any specifics on that. Um, I do know that um, the Trump administration has worked to um, pressure foreign governments that were not already providing sufficient information on travelers to the U.S. to do so. Um, and I know that that pressure has been fruitful in many cases. There are a few isolated instances. Uh, I believe Chad was one of the countries that was a problem. Um, one or two others um, that is still not giving us um, the things the Trump administration are requesting. Um, I know that, however, that there are a number of countries that previously were not giving us sufficient information on travelers that now are. So to the degree that they are more willing to get, provide information to the U.S., um, certainly should they, you know, favor um, their own security, they may be looking at these efforts as well um, in other ways. But so far, they are at least open to, um, to the idea um, because obviously it's not just Americans that are threatened by radical Islamists, it's much of the world. Okay, thank you. Well, we've come up on 429, and um, I'm sorry there weren't more people that were participating in questions, but I hope we gave them some back and forth to, uh, to chew over. And um, at this point, since we've come to the end of our time today, the forum wants to extend its thanks to those participants who called in and who participated and to Cliff Smith for an informative briefing on our topic. This concludes our conference call.